Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to The Messy Truth, conversations on photography. I'm honored to have Kathy Opie on the show today. Kathy needs no introduction. She is one of the most radical artists of our time. She's just released a new book, a visual survey of the last three decades of her practice. Published by Fiden, the book is organised in three themes, people, politics and place, the core tenets of her artistic investigation. It's presented non-chronologically, a curatorial strategy that Cathy's been experimenting with for the last decade that teases out these connections between seemingly incongruent bodies of work that result in this kind of very dynamic visual narrative that you are kind of drawn to return to again and again and again. In this episode, we talk about everything from visual strategies to thinking about the audience in the digital age, self-doubt, road trips, bearing witness, belonging, and so much more. What is remarkable about Kathy and what I so admire in her work is the ways in which she has this ability to shapeshift as an artist, to show us a multiplicity of inquiry, queering the medium again and again. The first question I wanted to ask you is about road trips, because it feels like they play a really interesting role within your work. And obviously earlier on um, with Domestic in 1999, they were important to you. And then I know you've been on a recent road trip with the Monuments work. Yeah. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that method of exploration and kind of why it's so important to you. I think because I live in such a large uh, metropolis of Los Angeles um, that, you know, one of the things that happens, especially in America in relationship to politics, is you have these bubbles, right? And L.A. is definitely a bubble and California is a bubble of a blue state. But ideologically, how do you encompass such a large country like America in relationship to it, not only visually, but also ideologically? The road trip provides that way to reconnect to the states and the land in in a very, um, um, you know, it's a lot different driving through it than flying over it. And it's important to think about that, that we're not just in this bubble, but that we're part of a larger uh, country. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting, actually, looking back through the book and think like kind of reflecting on these three decades of work. And I thought, you know, it was so powerful how you have always refused to be a singular identity as an artist I feel like even now that's quite rare I feel like in some ways your superpower is this kind of shape-shifting ability that you have and this uh, this idea of like querying different elements of the of the medium and I wondered you know how did you cultivate the confidence to do that especially in the early days because in my head that must have been quite tough well, I think I think it's really good that you're bringing this up because I'll just go to you know one of the first photographs in the book is you see me with a twin lens reflex. I'm in an overcoat and a fedora. And I believe that when I was out making street photographs, I had this kind of idea that somehow I could create these different personas that would allow a certain kind of invisibility. And there's something about the presence of a photographer that happens within some of the bodies of work. And then there's others where the bodies of work are really almost as if I'm an invisible player in the world and I'm just bearing witness. And I think through the history of photography and the way that the medium works in that way, I think that that singular identity, I just didn't want to get trapped within that because the medium has such richness in the relationship to being able to describe the times that I live in. 
Did it ever feel scary or were you ever nervous about kind of jumping between that? Or did it? I think high school football was the hardest for me. I think like that identity was very odd because you can't, I couldn't hide like the way that I look or the way that I am and like the kind of idea of American taunts of homophobia, Mm -hmm. you know, start often on a place like a football field. And also that intense kind of masculinity in relationship to my own butch identity. I think it pushed a lot of different interesting kind of feelings. But then once I realized that these were just, young men, young boys grappling with their own, you know, kind of assumptions of, of, again, what a singular identity might be for them and that it might not hold true. And once I kind of acknowledged that and realized the fragility of those guys, it really allowed me to enter that differently because it was important for it to be a broad American landscape. So Alaska and Hawaii is also included as landscapes within that body of work. And I think that that was, that was one of the, you know, besides doing a certain kind of editorial commercial work where I'm put outside my comfort zone to a certain extent, I would say that the high school, when I started high school football, it was kind of like, Oh, like, how are, am I going to get teased? Will they want to stand for me? Will they allow me to make their portraits, you know? And, um, and then it was just this really amazing exchange that we had, uh, for three years I spent in the falls making that body of work. Yeah. It's a long time, isn't it? To have yeah, that. It is. Sort of and, vulnerability. Uh, and I have my little pink tutu boy and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just like, and it was just like, I think it was just a really interesting thing I, because I do this happy fall card every year where I, now it's done. We did the last year this past fall with Oliver, but I have this happy fall picture of him looking super grumpy on one of the high school football fields, holding a football. And that's the last thing my son ever wanted to do was be a football player. And, uh, and so it's really, it's really interesting because you're, you're grappling with so many different things in relationship to identity. And I think that's, that's what's, what's fascinating is the complexities of life. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you say that because I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the concept of community, which is obviously such an important pillar in your work. And so much of what you're doing kind of seeks to subvert or interrogate our ideas, or as you just described with the footballers, our preconceptions about specific communities and more looking at examining their codes or their conventions and how they relate to each other. And I wondered what fascinates you about this human impulse to belong I think it's, I, you know, I, I hate using words like tribal, especially now in relationship to a, a understanding of larger political uh, references. But I think that it, we have, uh, as, a, as a species, we, we need to have a sense of belonging. I think the construct of religion did that on a universal level in sometimes a good way and other times not a very good way, especially because of the Pope's recent... decree it's like thank you pope yeah there we go and i think that 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 sense of universality is something that we try to achieve as a species but that's also the falsehood of the complexity of our species and i do view us as a species that we live on this planet all together Building on that, I'm, I'm really intrigued by the ways in which you kind of queer the conventions of what, what a portrait is or what a landscape is. And I love how you refer to both of them as these kind of architectural sites in which we kind of build our identity upon. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about why that idea is so resonant for you. I, I think that it came as an early recognition especially from my San Francisco days in which that as soon as I got my leather jacket that I found in a closet of a house I was renting and the woman (laughs) I was living with was vegan. So she did not want that 1950s motorcycle jacket. I put it on and the way that I could walk through the Castro or how I felt completely differently. And it's so funny because there was a recent article that I think came out of Britain about butches and their leather jackets, you know, Uh, it was a really beautiful article I read recently, but it is, it is something that 
um, especially within the queer community in terms of the secret codes that we had through the 80s, 70s and 80s. You know, it was it was a codified architecture of our body in order to, for us to acknowledge. Same thing with the blue star on the wrist in the World War II, where women would have a blue star tattooed under their watch as they worked in factories during the war. And as soon as they were taking their watch off, it was a little signifier that they were also a sister-loving sister, so to speak. And... Um, I think that then it's like exactly how we examine mini malls, that we understand that we've entered or exited a community in relationship to an immigrant population that has, you know, has their like small mom and pop shop in the in a mini mall. And so between the body and the actual world, we're always trying to build these kind of uh, signifiers in relationship to what kind of group of people that we belong to. I mean, we all know Cindy Sherman's costuming of, of like wealthy collectors, you know, that she kind of played with that in terms of costuming. And that has a specificity. Like you enter those realms and you understand the specificity of that identity. And I just, I don't know, I just find that incredibly fascinating to try to map out. I also really wanted to talk to you about self-portraiture because it feels like while it's not necessarily, you know, the leading aspect of your practice, it's such an important marker throughout your career. The marker in which the people first began to enter my work as well. And I think yeah. when an artist always kind of breaks through on a more international platform, it's often like their early work because it's also what launched them. But of course, it has it's the very you know personal aspect using my own body in relationship to my own identity. It's the most personal place to enter the work in some ways. How do you feel about performativity and, and sort of being in front of the camera? I don't really like being in front of a camera that much right now. Um, you know, I'm I'm going to be 60 next month and I'm starting to have that kind of like, oh gosh, you know, like my eyes are sagging too much, like things like that, which I never thought that I would feel that way uh, actually, because I don't, I don't, I don't take to it naturally. It's not an, I think that's why there's probably few, very few self portraits actually is when I made them, they were incredibly poignant and important for me to make. It was like this, this, okay, I have to make this and I have to use my body. But I think for the most part, um, I prefer to be behind the camera. I wanted to actually ask you about pervert because obviously it's such a radical, it's such a radical work, especially at the time. And even now, it feels like people are still disarmed by its sort of directness. Yeah, um, they are. Yeah. I know, you know, you've talked about how the piece was rooted in the leather community kind of facing this othering from within inside the queer community. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your intentions of the work. But more specifically, I'm curious about how you felt at the time making the work and also what your relationship is to the piece now. I'll start with the last question, which my relationship to the piece now, and which I've said in many interviews, is I'm so glad I made it. It was incredibly important for me to make. And uh, and that it's a piece that I personally would never want to live with in my own home, but that it's a piece that's important um, out in the world. And sometimes you make art for yourself because you need to see it. And other times you make art to be in a bigger conversation politically with a larger kind of world perspective. And that's where, per I mean, a lot of my work does that anyway, but pervert was specifically to not only for my, within my own community to realize the language they were using, but a universal kind of language in relationship to homophobia. It's like, you know, where and it is it is a time where we were wearing things on our body, and it's a time where blood was um, thought of as a really horrible substance because of AIDS. And so, to use my own blood in my own body, and at the same time, that was something that I did privately within the dungeons, as I was really interested in cutting and and piercing and and you know that was something that I did privately in in the SM community 
But to make it public was um, my way to grapple with um, how incredibly exhausted I felt in 1994 in relationship to homophobia and the denial of health care uh, for my community who were literally dying uh, in mass amounts uh, loss. And to go through your 20s and your 30s thinking that you would lose half of your friends. You know, we're in another pandemic now, but that was the first kind of pandemic that I had ever experienced. And then to have it so ignored because of our own personal choices in relationship to sexual preference. And then to have your own community at the same time want to embrace kind of mainstream culture and ideas of normalcy was just like, wait, what is going on, you know? And it was, it was, it was really complicated. And so I, I made that piece and it was made in San Francisco. There were probably about 14, 15 people in attendance. So it was a little bit more of a they knew that, you know, my friends knew I was making the photograph. And because we had Raylan Galena doing the cutting of Pervert in My Chest, who was one of the great body workers of San Francisco, as well as uh, uh, Joe and Melissa uh, doing the piercings who worked at Body Manipulation. So the whole thing was done very professionally, you know. And uh, But people wanted to attend to support me, to hold my hand, to watch me go through that uh, to make an image. And and at that point, I wasn't in the big art world in the way that I am now. The first place the piece ever showed was the Whitney Museum of American Art. So that created a whole other kind of discourse that I had to go down and tell my parents, not only am I lesbian, but guess what? Like I, uh, I made this image and it's going to show in a major museum. And so there was a lot of grappling with that piece in particular, more so than cutting on my back. There was a lot of grappling of what that meant for bringing it outside of a smaller community context into a public forum that I, that I was slightly naive about. Was there a sense of sort of reclaim or power in that moment as well, though? Because it really was a huge platform for the work to be seen and for those ideas to be considered. Did it feel powerful then or was it too much of like a whirlwind and and it's only now that you can kind of see that significance? It was powerful, but it also made me really nervous. And it wasn't the nervousness about making the piece and about being accepted in society. You know, I've always had to grapple with that. It was more about, um, okay, I have all these other ideas as an artist. How am I going to be able to do that as well? Because now this has hit in such a big global way, this one body of work. And how am I going to get people to understand the territories that I traverse with my work? And also, how am I ever going to get a full-time teaching job? And, uh, you know, it took till I was 40 to get a a full-time teaching job. That's wild, isn't it? I wanted to actually talk about self-portrait cutting that you mentioned as well, because it feels like while also being a very powerful image, there's such a tenderness there. And it kind of makes me think about this thread of empathy, which seems to run through all of your work. It's sort of kind of this omnipresent force. And I wondered if that kind of resonated for you at all. Empathy is really important. I I think that we all need more lessons in empathy. Um, I talk to my students a lot about uh, being a a good citizen, and they think that being a good citizen equates with nationalism, and they don't understand the sense of citizenship in relationship to humanity and empathy and that we all are here to serve one another and to serve uh, in in kindness. And, and those are just like really big core values for me, you know, and, uh, but empathy is also a way to allow people to enter the work where pervert isn't empathetic at all. It's just there. It is so bold and out there. And the idea of a child's drawing and that a child would be denied two stick figure moms, 
you know, uh, that I think is was a way to actually create a different universal reading, even though it was in blood on my body. There's a universality just to the drawing alone that the sun is going to come out of the clouds and that you have to ask the larger questions in relationship to kind of fear and, and homophobia. And so that's the other thing. If you, you know, with empathy, you can enter things in the same way I was talking earlier about high school football. It's like you look at some of those portraits and you just want to give those guys a hug, you know, and uh, and that's pretty special to, I think, leave viewers with. It's funny. I can't remember which word you used, but I always think about the work as this sort of empathetic tenderness, but also this sense of turbulence as well. And this idea of like, I know you've talked about this before, this like peeling back the layers of what is pervasive or iconic, what the culture thinks of as those sort of totems. And in many ways, it feels like that also sort of links to this sense of disrupting or unraveling the fragility of the American dream. And I wondered if, well, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your desire to kind of debunk the iconic and also your relationship to the United States in terms of, you know, you've made so many bodies of work about the country in so many different angles. Well, it was not uh, easy as it is for you in Britain to live through potential fascist leaders and to see, you know, I, I am the first to always say that America is a flawed democracy, that it's an experiment. It's one of the only countries that has the kind of diversity in relationship to, but it's also so problematic in the way that this land was taken and how it was built and whose bodies we built it on. You know, in this, in terms of colonialist practices, quite honestly, the notion of the American dream for me was always one that is steeped in a certain sense of, of flawed nostalgia. It is apple pies, flags waving. It's, it's like me growing up reading Dick and Jane books, you know, but at the same time watching the riots in Chicago around the National Convention. Same time I'm watching Vietnam on television as a kid. So I think that I was, even though I grew up in like a white suburban enclave in Sandusky, Ohio, I think that I had uh, an incredible awareness of, even when I was a kid, of not feeling right within kind of the patriotism of this country, that I felt early on that it was flawed to a certain extent. And then even more flawed once I figured out my sexual identity. I also grew up, interesting enough, with a father who was, a, you know, an atheist. And so I didn't have religion play as this core value within my upbringing. And my dad was like somebody who was utterly a Republican conservative, but at the same time, he thought outside the box as well. So my dad was a, a pretty amazing kind of intellectual to talk with about things. And he talked with us about everything. And when he was around, uh, he worked really hard and so I think that I got to grow up with this different perspective where I already saw how things can be flawed just because my dad allowed, a, a, you know, a conversations to flow in our house. Yeah, healthy debate is important. I mean, that's the great thing that Julie and I have with both, uh, well, more so with Oliver than with Sarah, our daughter's a full adult at 40 years old. But with Oliver, like we always had healthy debate. Like he would debate his ideas at the dinner table. And that's exactly how I grew up or when we would play board games, you know, the idea of debate and strategy and conversation around a family board game. I think that often people aren't allowed to grow up raising their own opinions and having their own questions. Yeah, it's one thing that I've realized is the hardest, not the hardest, but probably the most important part of parenting is to let your kids emerge as themselves. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Messy Truth, conversations on photography. 
I wanted to talk a little bit about your aesthetic strategies and this idea of kind of democracy as an aesthetic strategy and I feel like you're doing this in lots of different ways through structure and palette and composition and I know the wonderful curator um, Helen Molesworth often refers to your democratic way of seeing in relation to the horizon line. I know that was so cool she brought that up because I never actually would have thought about that. Yeah I thought it was such an astute observation. Yeah she instilled that in the work and then when she said it it rang true, like good curators will say things that make you see your work in a different way. And it was like, oh, that's, she's spot on about that, you know? Yeah, so it does feel completely spot on. And it's also, it makes me think of as well, the way you kind of maintain a distance and you always provide context. Um, it feels like you're making room for everybody to enter the work in, in their own way. And I wondered if you think a lot about entry points when you're kind of making the work. My aesthetics are not as pre-planned as they are just my aesthetic, you know? There's something that I approach it with. It's how I frame it. There's a consistency to that. I would say that I obviously am trained somewhat in a formalist school of photography, you know? I'm, I'm not not formal. I have a very hard time when things aren't straight, like political... The political landscapes are the hardest body of work for me to look at because they're messy. But then it's kind of perfect because democracy is messy. It actually works in a certain way that that messiness bothers me because it agitates me and reminds me that the work of democracy in itself is messy. And I think that it's just, you know, I like clear lines. I like I like to... Um, also seduce and i'm interested in how seduction works in in terms of of image making and that part of kind of um a formal modernist training so to speak to allowing also a broader sensibility around uh the history of art and i think that you know i'm gonna have to think a lot about that now because what what is that specificity of that eye and is it all you know is that in itself also a male gaze i guess this is where i'm trying to break out of my modernist box actually now that i'm listening to myself explain this to you i'm realizing that i'm trying to create uh structures that interrupt other structures within the process of trying to make the work And this might be, you know, like on the wall in the studio right now, I'll have a photograph of of Abraham Lincoln's uh, museum and childhood home where it's depicted on a wall graph of man kneeling as a slave with chains on. And then I right now on the, the studio wall have that juxtaposed to an image I shot with my cell phone off the TV during the debate in which Mike Pence had a fly land on his head. So, you know, do are we breaking the kind of systematic structure of what is monumental? Because isn't a fly being on the vice president's head for a long period of time as a debate that the whole world talks about also monumental? That's how I tried to photograph Chicago, right? Chicago is one of the most modernist cities of all times. We all know that it's the city of architecture in America. So by photographing it only at night and how it's lit, I also like add lower whacker, which isn't like, that's a way to get under Chicago and through Chicago that only, so it's like, well, we have this notion of the great architecture what is also about utility and what is it also about functioning and and doesn't that in itself have its own privilege of architecture because of how it performs other kinds of needs versus like oh that's like this perfect building that's the Mies van der Rohe. Sort of I guess related to that I wanted to talk about the presentation of your work and this the ways in which which I think I correct me if I'm wrong, but it could have stemmed from Helen as well. But this idea of pairing sort of inc- seemingly incongruent bodies of work together to kind of fuse and create this new dialogue or way of connecting them or building a relationship between them, which I guess 
you know, I know you did it recently with rhetorical landscapes and it's sort of that energy is also in the new Fiden book as well. And I wondered how you discovered that approach and kind of what that sort of fusion of different bodies of work sitting together enables you to do compared to showing them as just single distinct series. Yeah, I think that I think I think that it's actually a curatorial approach to the work versus the way that I make the work. And I think after all these years of working with so many great curators at the Louisiana Museum in Denmark during Sunshine and Noir, that fabulous show of LA artists, and the curator had chosen to place Pervert next to one of the Beverly Hills houses, which I've placed in the book. Um, in the Fiden book that way. In my mind, it created these other pathways for me to think about the work. And then when Helen did Empty and Full, where she placed the political kind of landscapes in relationship to the Hanjin trip that I made on the container ship, I was able to understand her kind of ideas of what it means to also break that structure. Like, how can we break that structure? I think these are questions that, that Helen has asked herself quite a bit as a curator. So I, and then the first body of work that really pushed that beyond rhetorical landscapes would be portraits and landscapes, where I put the abstract landscapes with the almost like, you know, very heavily influenced by Dutch painting, obviously, uh, portraits of my friends as well as artists. And they're a little bit more allegorical than most of my work because I've never been that much interested in allegory except for when it comes to Ron Athey. That's all purely allegorical because of what Ron brings to his own work. And so I, I think that by the body of work, Portraits and Landscapes also allowed me to then think about, okay, well, there's all these other things that I want to tr try to do and talk about. And then The Modernist was a huge step for me to kind of make that film of, you know, in conversation with Chris Marker's La Jetée. And it opened up, like it literally for me, when I made The Modernist, it was as if I took all the bodies of work that I had made for many, many years and put them all into one piece. And, uh, and that, that thrilled me. And then came rhetorical landscapes and now 2020 and it, 2020 will be actually more on the realm of like photography, kind of what inauguration was as well as in and around home and 1999. It, 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 it's in that slot, but, but I do think that we have to, with photography being so ever present in all of our lives on every single device, we have to allow more kind of experimentation of meaning within the medium to be to move the medium forward as well in my mind yeah i wanted to talk to you actually about that ubiquity of images because it feels like we have you know this kind of it's become our cultural identity to just be consuming all the time in pictures we communicate in pictures it's just our primary uh, method of yeah, kind of existing in many ways. And I wondered, you know, I know you talk a lot about thinking about how you hold the audience and how you engage the audience beyond just that glance and move on, which has become our kind of, you know, we almost have to train ourselves out of just glancing and moving on and, and like learn how to refocus. So I wondered, you know, how you think about this challenge of holding the viewer's attention or, or if you do indeed think about it. I think it's really hard. I mean, I think I'm thinking about it all the time as I'm editing this body of work. I have stacks of photographs that I'm trying to edit through right now. And I, I uh, uh, you know, said to Heather, my assistant, the other day, I said, okay, like, there's photographs that tell a certain kind of story that prop up another photograph, but I'm going to try to only do good photographs. I'm going to try not to prop up the story with another photograph. I have to do it just through sequencing and what each individual image does to bringing you in. And I think that's the problem with people's Instagram accounts or other things is too many of the photographs are props in one's life versus having really amazing solidified meanings um, with, with what, you know, a image can do. 
So it has to be about a image in the totality of all the images that you use within the body of work that I'm trying to work towards that hopefully changes then. Because, you know, in inauguration, like I love that book, but not every photograph in that book do I consider like a great photograph. They end up telling a story. So I'm not... I'm trying to get out of that mode. It makes me think of a body of work that I did that is represented in this book. And it was called A Long Way From Paris. And it dealt with the gentrification of MacArthur Park. And I was able to distill that with five photographs. And it was a small place that I was installing in. But I was able to make five photographs work to distill that information. And there's not going to there's going to be more than five photographs in 2020 because it was a big year for all of us. But I I often think about that. Okay, well, what is the most important piece of information? And I think that's a way to try to get through the weeds, so to speak. Yeah, that makes sense. Are you exhibiting 2020 soon? I hope so. I mean, it's going to be done. I'll I'll edit it to a book and then I'll edit it to an exhibition. The exhibition will look different than the book because books have their own life and they do different things. Um, so I'm hoping to, uh, I have exhibitions coming up. I have an exhibition coming up in London next uh, July with, uh, with Thomas Dane. And I don't know if that'll be 2020, if it makes sense for it to come to Britain or if I use the body of work to create a bridge to what you have all gone through uh, as well as your own kind of isolation and identity being thrown up in the air at the same time America's identity and try to talk about that notion of across the pond, you know? Um, so, so I'll have to, like, once I can make this be what it is, then I can start thinking about, like, okay, what would be interesting to have a conversation with with a London exhibition oh I love that I can't wait for that that'll be great <laughs> I hope so <laughs> <laughs> so I heard this fabulous story about how 700 Neems Road came about yeah. and that you know I had naively assumed that that came about as some kind of highbrow commission but i i heard you talk about how it came through the fact that you and elizabeth taylor had the same accountant yeah yeah that that is possibly one of the best stories about a genesis of work it's just so random and humble and and funny i i love it and i wondered you know were there have you had any other instances where projects have been manifested in surprising ways like that yeah i mean i i not as not as kind of moving as that body of work, that body of work kind of just blew my mind. It was really odd because I also had to sign all these legal documents and I wasn't allowed to show or talk about when I was making the work. And then to have Elizabeth die as I was making it pass away and her being such a huge iconic movie star. And then to navigate that body of work then that I was still making, not out of a place of nostalgia, but still trying to make it work as the work that I wanted to make. And then have the approval of the estate, the, the trustees of the estate. Yeah, I haven't ever had anything like that. That was, that was unique. But I would say that, you know, like coming up with going across the ocean on a container ship and trying to make that body of work was... I didn't know exactly how that would work. Um, and I, I, you know, in, in other commissions that I've had, I've always been a little bit surprised with the exchange or things. Uh, but mostly I do things in a very direct way. That's, that's for me. But the, the uh, you know, Han Jin was a phone call. I was like, hi, you've won an award. Oh, oh, I've won an award. Well, what kind of award have I won? And they're like, well, um, Han Jin would like you to make a body of work and it requires from you to go on a container ship and either leave from the port of Long Beach and go to the port in uh, Korea of Busan, or you can go to Korea and go from Busan to Long Beach. And then you make a body of work and, and uh, we pay you for it. And this is an award. 
And this is like basically, uh, this is this is basically corporate tax write-off, right? That's an award. The new award is that, oh, we're going to get this thing of great value from you for this amount of money, but it's a commission. And I was like, okay, well, hey, why not? <laughs> and uh, I didn't know uh, exactly what I was going to make. And then I just decided, okay, well, it's kind of performative piece. So let's do every sunrise and sunset. And, uh, and I didn't, I didn't know how it would come out or what the ship experience would be like or anything. And it turned out to be a body of work that I really uh, learned a lot from. And it was interesting because it became a time-based kind of performative piece and to have landscape work as performance is really difficult mm. and uh so it did again it did all these things where it made all of these connections and it was literally just a phone call that was like saying hey you won an award and i was like oh uh, oh wow okay <laughs> it's interesting isn't it just those moments of unpredictability that kind of take you somewhere i know i like that well, that's kind of what a road trip does too. Like bringing out, you know, like you brought up in the beginning of our conversation, road trips. Road trips are absolutely unpredictable as well. And then it's within that that I think is so beautiful because you are experiencing a moment that you didn't pre-plan for and you just have to go with it. And photography just does that so beautifully. Yeah, it's, that's a lot about trusting in the process as well, isn't it? It takes a lot. I think especially if you're somebody who has that rigor and, and planning and and as you say, kind of making work for yourself to like surrender into the process of a road trip or as you kind of describe that project, it, it's, it takes a lot to let go, I think, sometimes and just see where see where you go. You You obviously have such a passionate... Uh, relationship with the history of art yeah and I I know obviously painting is very important to you and you've talked so much about the different bodies of work and, and who and what and why they're in conversation with I was curious who you see your work in dialogue with lately I guess with 2020 the impetus of making the work was because we were locked in our house during a pandemic and all of this new fear came out in the world and I'm really interested in how fear um, stifles us as well as it creates, a, you know, I mean, a lot of uh, uh, in and around home was because it was uh, uh, reflecting on 9-11. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm super interested in how fear obstructs uh humanity to a certain extent. And I would say that I got an enormous amount of information from photojournalists and that it was because of photojournalism in this past year that made me feel that I needed to go out and bear witness. So the last few questions I have for you are kind of slightly looser questions. They're not particularly tied to bodies of work. The first one is, how do things change for you in the making of things? Do you stick to like a rigorous plan? I have a rigorous plan. I conceive it in my head. But then there's all these things that happen because you don't know what's going to happen until you're there and you're making the photographs. And so, you know, that's the beauty of making a body of work is learning how to break your own rules and allow for you to see things as you're making it to to make it a little bit fuller than what just lived in your head. How do you deal with self-doubt? Oh, self-doubt. You push it aside, I guess, and you just have to be you, you just you just know that you have to make everything that comes to your mind and if you don't do that, then you are buying into self-doubt. And some things work and some things don't work. And you just edit. You understand that the process in itself will get through. And it, it, when I teach, I'm really big on sequencing and editing. I'm like, look, just throw it all. Like, just throw it out there. And then in the end, let's look at how it works. And um, 
I think that people often think that every image they make has to be a perfect image. But the good thing about our medium, and especially now that, you know, we don't even have the expense of film necessarily, but it's more like the CF cards if we're shooting digital, you, you know, when I was shooting film, I would only allow certain, I, uh, you know, with the early portraits, it was, I could only afford 10 sheets of film per person. So there was like a lot of anxiety of making sure you got the portrait right. Um, nowadays, uh, the problem is, is that you make too many images because you don't have the same economical pressure of how precious a f sheet of film is if you're shooting large format. So you just push it aside. You just like, you have to, you know, like I'll have days where I'm depressed and I'll just be like, oh, like I, I'm stuck on the edit of 2020 now. And I said to uh, Julie coming into the studio today, my wife, I was just like, okay, I'm going to do the morning interview and then I'm only going to work the wall. I'm not going to allow myself to go and sit and watch a silly TV program in, in the bedroom in the studio. I'm going to go and I'm going to work the wall all day. I'm only going to allow myself this break and this break. And so that's the other thing that I'm always telling young artists is schedule yourself in your date book and hold yourself accountable to that because the doubt will just send you streaming Netflix for hours, but you have to be able to then get back to the work. Yeah, I think that's a life-changing lesson. It really is. It sounds so simple, but it's actually pretty radical, the effect it can have. Did success change your work at all, do you think? <laughs> no, not really. I mean, if, if, if finances and success changed my work, I would still be making surfers for everybody, you know? I mean, uh, yeah, it, 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 that, that, you know, in some ways is, was the most uh, financially successful body of work for myself. And I do them for charity now. Like I'll go out and I'll make a surfer for a charity benefit because I know that it'll sell. <laughs> Because people want them, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Success. I, I think that I wouldn't make such difficult bodies of work like the modernist or even rhetorical landscapes if I thought about the notion of success. I think it has to be about the work first and foremost. You've obviously had such an incredibly vibrant career. I'm curious if you've had to unlearn anything along the way. Oh, wow. Unlearning. Huh. That's interesting. Um that's a hard question. That's a really complicated question because I think we're always unlearning, right? I mean, it was like what I was talking to you about kind of like, okay, well, I grew up in this like idea of formality and modernist structure. And now do I need to unlearn that a little bit because of, of how we can create different kinds of representations? And I think I've definitely created different kinds of representation throughout my life as an artist um, and as a photographer. But unlearning is actually learning. And so I think that that's the easiest way to end with that question is that you have to keep asking yourself the very hard and important questions. And in and itself, that is an unlearning. <laughs> very I didn't good know answer. I was going to get there. <laughs> very, very good answer. You, you played me well then. I'm impressed. This I'm very, very interested in your opinion. Do you think photographs can still create change? Well, I guess I'm more cynical. Um, yeah, it can change. It can change for individuals, but maybe not for society. Like how many young people have come up to me and said, I saw your Guggenheim show when I was, uh, I was 14 years old and it changed the way that I could see myself. So I think I, I'm a, I don't think that I can change laws or create a universality within my work, but I can express what I believe in. And I think that within that, there could be individual change, which then lends to a broader society change. But I think I'm a little bit more cynical than optimistic. But there's a lot of power in changing an individual mindset, isn't it? It's kind of, you know, as I said to you before we started recording, domestic is a body of work that I revisit all the time in different parts of my life and really, really provides me with a lot of comfort in, in ways that other things can't. And I, and 
I think the fact that I have that constant revisiting is quite a powerful thing when you feel, you know, you may feel isolated or or whatever it is that you're going through emotionally. It's such a powerful thing. And even though it's like a one-on-one situation, I feel like, you know, that can dramatically change how I feel about the world and how I feel about myself. And I think that I think that's so powerful still. No, I think I think so. And I think art does that for me too. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, there's different moments that I have that just kind of blow my mind. Like I was able, SF MoMA opened for a moment and I would just happen to be driving my RV up to uh, Portland to photograph up in Portland. And uh, so we went in and because Dawood Bay's show was up and I really wanted to see his show because I knew that I might not be able to see it in New York depending on how long the pandemic. So I was able to see his show. But then I wandered through the rest of the museums and, you know, I again had this Richter moment. And I, you know, I think that, uh, that uh, uh, other artists um, really love Richter for a lot of different reasons. But there was a cityscape painting next to a seascape painting. And it, it just did this thing again in the same way that Dawood's show did this thing. And so I'm really going to be happy when the world reopens and we can all look at art again because it really is part of the way that we understand you know our world and our culture and society and it's been hard only being able galleries have been opened in LA now for a while so we've been able I've been able to see shows in galleries but I I miss the I miss the museums mm. Yeah, me too. Ours have been closed for a long time and I just can't wait for the next few months when hopefully things will things will open again. To finish up, I wanted to ask you the question that I ask everybody at the end of the show, and that's what matters more to you, the process of making the work or the final photograph? <laughs> Equal. <laughs> it's a popular answer. I'll be democratic about it. Uh, there are different processes. That I'll acknowledge. Um, the The discovery of making a new body of work is like, it, it's exciting. It's like, it makes your stomach like on a first date, like kind of, you're kind of like nervous, like, oh, I'm, I'm like on a first date. Like, how is this going to go? And then the finishing of it feels like, okay, I've grappled with you. I understand this relationship and we're ready to move forward. <laughs> I love that. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Kathy. It's honestly been such a delight to speak to you. Sure. Thanks for listening to The Messy Truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.